Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Parents, rejoice because we are back again today to tell you about what all of that baby stuff cluttering your house means. I mean, what does it all mean? (laughs) I'm waiting with bated breath, April. (laughs) I'm jesting a wee bit here, of course. No, but we are delighted to continue our discussion today with design historians Michelle Miller-Fisher and Amber Winnick, co-creators of the Designing Motherhood Instagram exhibition and accompanying book. Michelle Miller-Fisher currently serves as the Ronald C. and Anita L. Warnick Curator of Contemporary Decorative Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. And Amber Winnick is fresh off her second Fulbright Award. And in addition to her MA in Design History, also holds degrees in Childhood Development and Cultural Anthropology. And their exhibition, Designing Motherhood, is currently on view at the Mass Art Art Museum in Boston through the end of this year. And it's also accompanied by a wonderful exhibition catalog of the same name, which details 100 objects, which evidence the exhibition's themes of reproduction, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. And of course, listeners, we will not be able to cover each and every one of these on the podcast. So our discussion is limited to the wearable objects covered in the books and exhibit. And not even all of those, we can't touch on all of them because there's just so much more to say on this topic. That's right. And if you haven't checked out part one yet, we highly recommend you do so. Um, That's where we set up the concept of the project. And we also speak about our first two objects, the pregnancy corset and the faha, as garments intended to support pregnant bodies. And today we investigate four more items related to both mother and baby. So without further ado, we pick back up with April's conversation with Amber and Michelle. I love the fact that Many of these cultures are interweaving their own unique textile traditions with this experience of birth. And we also see that um, figure significantly in sari-wearing cultures. Again, you write 80 million women across the country, and you're referring to India here at first. And then you go on to say, farther afield in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and beyond, don it, the sari, on a daily basis, according to conservative estimates. So... As such a ubiquitous garment, how does the wearing of sari support motherhood? So it's it supports actually the whole reproductive arc, <laughs> which is so beautiful. I mean, I am currently uh, uh, having my period right now. I'm very happy. I'm not wearing a sari, but I'm very happy to be wearing something that is loose like one in a way. It supports your body as it changes over time. So yes, it absolutely supports the nine months that you might be pregnant and certainly the postpartum period where your body might be changing. And also you might have an attachment in terms of an infant. We have to credit that essay to the brilliant Malika Verma, who, again, I met um, as part of Items when I came across her really fantastic sari series. She traveled across the Indian subcontinent and researched different sari drapes, um, which really differ based on region, based on family, sometimes based on community. 
And she made these beautiful videos, I think over 80 of them and counting of the drapes. It's sort of a, a, an archaeology, an anthology of uh, the sari as a living, breathing, absolutely contemporary dress form uh, and mode of expression. And so, again, when we wrote the book, there were some things that we really felt we could research, we wanted to research, but there were other parts where we felt very strongly that we wanted to platform folks who actually had stakeholder experience and expertise. Um, and so Malika was one of those folks. And she writes about the sari being so important for motherhood because it's so versatile. Um, she talks about the nivy drape and the way that that with an empire tie allows a, you know, a blossoming baby bump to, to come out in the way that it needs to and not be constricted by clothing. She writes of the way it sort of helps with coolness of being able to regulate temperature during pregnancy. Um, she writes of matrilineal ties, the special nature of being able to wear something that other women in your family have worn and handed down to you. And so the kind of, as, as Amber was saying, this sort of psychic connection with textile. And she talks about it being multi-purpose after pregnancy too. So it can become a cradle, it can become a hammock. There's a beautiful poem that she included in her essay that was circulated again, it sort of got resurrected. It's an older um, poem from the Indian subcontinent, got resurrected and got texted and sort of went viral again in 2017, where it talks about the sari as being something that folks remember their mother or their grandmother wiping their tears the way with, wiping up something when they'd scraped their knee, um, being a place of comfort and refuge. If you're a shy a child, you hide it and its drapes as you're um, at a family function. And so it really is just this multi-purpose garment that is probably the most generous and beautiful maternity wear, I think, that Amber and I came across in any of our research. And such a beautifully written essay, too. I love that one. It's fantastic. I will say that that was my favorite part of the items exhibition. And I still probably have pictures and video of it on my phone. <laughs> it was I fascinating. Loved it. And the, the best thing about it, Malika is the nicest person to work with. She was just fantastic. I think it's, there's a really interesting conundrum in all of these projects, um, but certainly when they happen in institutions, these are institutions that often haven't supported cross-cultural exploration in ways that are not deeply colonialist and uh, deeply uh, sort of white supremacist, uh, supremacist at times. And so it's really hard being able to, in an authentic and careful way, invite in experiences. We were lucky with Designing Motherhood because we kind of built the culture from the ground up and it was not within an institution, but it's always a delicate balance doing that right. And I'm not sure that in museums we do it right a lot of the time. Malika was so thoughtful um, in that uh, collaboration and I was so pleased with the way it turned out. It was just beautiful. Her work's amazing. The last three items I would like to ask you about are actually not for the person giving birth, but rather largely for baby. Would you tell us a little bit about the history of infant identification and also how it is currently practiced? Because one of the things we love to do here on Dress is talk about the intersection of you know, the things that we wear and how they intersect with the historic arc of technology. And this is very specifically one of those things. Absolutely. And can I just say that I am so happy that you're asking about this one. This is kind of, uh, this this object and essay kind of gets skipped over a lot in these kinds of uh, interviews. And it is just a fascinating, fascinating topic. Um, so one of the most surprising aspects of researching this chapter was realizing how completely ubiquitous the fear of having one's baby switched at birth is. Mm -hmm. um, and this switched at birth idea is not only familiar and 
kind of like a shocking plot device and tabloid headline that we see around. It's a paranoia that's been pervasive around the world and has been part of popular imagination for centuries. Mm -hmm. So it was embraced as a theme in European medieval literature, 18th century melodramas, Gilbert and Sullivan comic operas, Bollywood cinema, Japanese anime, soap operas, American hit, mega hit soap operas. So when hospital birth replaced home birth in the US in the early 20th century, the worry was suddenly super fathomable, more so than it had ever been before. Uh, I, in researching the chapter, I saw an image of a cart full of babies taken in a hallway of a hospital. And I mean, imagine that it was left to the nurse and the mother to remember whose baby was whose. Wow. So like what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> in the 1910s and 20s, hospitals tried various methods out. Um, they tied aluminum tags around babies' necks. They pinned slips of paper to their clothes or umbilical stumps. And they even wrote their names in wax pencil across their chests. In 1919, an obstetrician uh, from Brooklyn Hospital, uh, Dr. Pomeroy, together with a colleague, Dr. Morgenthaler, approached a glassmaker, a local glassmaker in Brooklyn, and together they designed tiny beads of milk glass with little capital letters etched in black across their centers. So milk glass at the time, uh, it's white, it's opaque. It was a fashionable alternative to porcelain because it was cheap. And it was used from everything from decorative pieces like lamps to architectural elements to jewelry. And so using milk glass to spell the family name for identification purposes was a totally new idea, but it caught on super quickly. And uh, it became one of the primary roles of the maternity nurse, actually, to string together a necklace or a bracelet with the baby's family name. And it was super quick to do and um, came in a cute little kit. And the beads were, I mean, it was a simple design innovation. It was secure and expensive, easy to read, didn't hurt the baby's skin. And interestingly, the beads were much more like jewelry than a medical device. So they became an heirloom to be worn and treasured and saved as a keepsake. The company... J.A. Decknadel and Sons, which was, uh, they actually were famous for creating imitation pearls. They began producing these name-on kits. So they had these A to Z enamel beads organized in trays, and they advertised heavily to nurses and sold them directly to hospitals really across the U.S. in the mid-century. And as technology and medicine and new materials were developed, infant identification progressed um, but really the beads influenced this focus on future designs and the wearability of them, right? So even to this day, whether it's like a scanned uh, vinyl bracelet or a plastic bracelet with um, a space for paper to slip through, everything is worn. And this really comes from these name on beads, this milk glass uh, technology. It's such a simple solution to such a serious issue. 
you almost kind of wonder what, what took them so long to figure this out. And it's just beautiful as well. April, that is the million dollar question of so much to do with design for the arc of human reproduction, especially when it comes to people with uteruses, where you're like, hmm, I wonder why it took so long for them to invest in this area or to figure it out. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that the I mean, simple answer is patriarchy and misogyny, but um, we we go into it in more depth in our book. Amber, I'm so uh, curious. You never had one of these though for Alice or Cosimo or Jules, right? Because you had them all at home. That is absolutely correct. And really, this is a technology that only came into being with the you know the advent of the maternity ward in the hospital which was not the case early in the 20th century, people gave birth in their homes. And to this day, nobody needs to identify their own infant in their homes. There's no chance of getting them mixed up. Um, it's really only when birth goes into the hospital and there are multiple babies, that this problem becomes an issue, right? So it's, it really, it also tells a great story about um, the history of hospital birth. And the next object I would like to speak to you about is probably emblematic of the hospital birth. As somebody who does not have kids, I was unfamiliar with this. Um, I was surprised to learn that I might be in the global minority in my ignorance of it. But ladies, what is a cuddle up and why is it so emblematic around the world? Well, even if you haven't given birth and even if you weren't aware of the cuddle up, you have seen them before. They are just everywhere. And in fact, not every single, because <laughs> including my own births, um, they didn't show up because I had home births myself, but uh, they're really ubiquitous. Um, the cuddle up is a white cotton blanket with alternate stripes of pink and blue around the edges. And it's used in hospital labor and delivery wards literally all around the world and is one of the very first objects to touch the skin of countless newborns. So it's a receiving blanket. Mm -hmm. um, in 1910, a group of nuns approached uh, an apron maker called A.L. Mills. Um, he created aprons in Chicago's meatpacking district. And they asked if he could begin to make hospital garments for them, such as surgeon's gowns, nurses' uniforms, to free up the nuns so that they could spend more time caring for patients rather than sewing. Um, so Mills took them up on the idea, created a full-on medical garment and textile supply business. And today, Mills's company, Medline, is, I believe, the largest privately held manufacturer of healthcare and surgical products. But the Cuddle Up is their, an absolute centerpiece for the company. It's really a company darling. Um, and it was Mills's idea actually in mid-century to freshen up the baby receiving blanket, which was previously just a very drab beige color. And he created the Cuddle Up in Candy Stripe, which was bright white, clean feeling, and with those little pink and blue stripes would be suitable for any baby, regardless of assigned gender. But it was also this timing that made the Cuddle Up a success. So as hospital birth became more ubiquitous and, you know, we were kind of getting into this in the spirit of um, the U.S. as a whole, Henry Ford was revolutionizing the mass production of automobiles with the assembly line concept and the medical industry developed its own production protocols. So a lot of standards issue supplies were introduced to the hospital delivery award 
to assure safety and hygiene, but they also saved time and money and helped increase profit margins. And as the medical industry in America grew increasingly aligned with profit-seeking businesses rather than local makers like the nuns or even local medical practices or midwives, companies like Medline really flourished and have become super stakeholders in the U.S. healthcare system. So yeah, today the cuddle-up blankets are made in Karachi, Pakistan, um, and we can see from photos of the cuddle-up all over the world. From I've seen them in Haiti and England and China. The U.S. has really succeeded in exporting its model of medicalized birth, but also a lot of its stuff, too. But interestingly, unlike rubber gloves or surgical masks, the cuddle-up isn't really a medical necessity so much as it's just a byproduct of this standardized care. So it's just really the perfect object to tell the story of how childbirth moved from home to hospital and how birth has really largely been standardized as a result. I thought it was fascinating, too, that I think you note that technically the blankets aren't supposed to leave the hospital, but yet many of them transition home um, with with baby. So, dress listeners, if you have any pictures of your cuddle-ups at home, send them to us. We will post them in our stories. (laughs) Oh, that's so nice. Love that. I have saved perhaps the most fabulous for last, or at least in my opinion, we are a fashion podcast after all. So we have to talk about the Petit Pli. I discovered this brand when I was actually searching for a baby gift for Cass and was beyond beguiled. It is bookmarked on my computer. And I'm sure that baby Leo has a set in his future from Auntie April when he gets a little bit older. But uh, what is the concept behind Petit Pli? And can you share with us a little bit about its founder and also how sustainability is at the very center of its platform? Absolutely. So um, Ryan Mario Yassin is the aeronautical engineer turned now, I guess, fashion designer who is um, the founder of Petit Pli. And I think you'll be really excited to hear that you love um, the product so much. They're a really nice team to work with. So it came actually from exactly what you're talking about, trying to find a gift for a a new person in the world. He bought uh, some garments for his young nephew. And by the time he got to see him and give him the gift when he was an infant or give his parents the gift for him, that he had outgrown the clothing um, that he had, had purchased. And so he wanted to circumvent that. Um, He's not the first person. Uh, Certainly we quote in the book, Dr. Spock, one of his uh, very famous, maybe not so famous pieces of advice is not to buy anything below a one-year-old size because Mm -hmm. it's going to get blown through really quickly in terms of the explosive growth of um, infants over that first year. When I think you go from the average sort of median weight is around seven and a half pounds to, to 22 pounds at the end of your first 12 months of life. And so he created this technology that looks a bit like um, the love child between Isimiyaki and Fortuni. It's this beautiful um, pleated material that is uh, you know, trademarked and protected in terms of its exact specifications by Petit Pli. But in essence, you can buy tops and bottoms um, that can go from three months to three years being worn. The the same pair of trousers, for example, being worn by a three-month-old, and they gradually concertina out. So like an accordion, they grow with your child. 
Um, and so that's the, the sustainability part, not having to buy tons and tons of clothes. Certainly they are not inexpensive. I think when we wrote the essay, they retail for around $160 for a set. And as we wrote, and I, I, I went back to the essay a couple of nights ago, I was like, oh, right, that's true. We wrote the adage of being uh, too poor to buy cheap shoes. So, you know, you buy something once and you make it lost, but you have to be able to afford to buy it. And it's not totally inexpensive. But yeah, his thought is that it, it allows people to buy less um, and to have their children uh, wear for longer. He's really thought a lot about it being really wear resistant. So it is a special kind of textile that really resists stains, tears, stretching, etc. It was first debuted in 2017, 2016, 2017. He, he won the Dyson Award that year. So I think it's still going through, you know, real world testing in so many ways. It's out there being worn by very little people who uh, petty plea call their tiny athletes, um, the people who <laughs> Putting this to the test. What I love about it, I guess the last thing I'll say is that, again, I want to give a shout out to Lauren Downey Peters. She really schooled me very early on in where pregnancy garments um, of the early 20th century met conversations around adaptable clothing or plus size clothing and the ways in which being able to have a garment that responded to a waistline um, was something that those two categories of clothing shared. And certainly this is part of that conversation about adaptable clothing as well and thinking about the kind of tyranny of standardization of size mm-hmm. being able to not think necessarily you know I have to have reached this particular size um, by this age I should be fitting into these clothes or your infant should be fitting into these clothes at this particular age and stage it kind of removes that in a way the clothes just grow as your infant does and that's the way it should be yeah absolutely well the standardized sizing has has pulled this like Put over eyes that that our body should be a certain way. They should be a certain way, and yet none of them are. <laughs> totally, 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 totally. So I think um, he wanted to respond to that both from sort of a sustainability and cost perspective, but also very much from um, that more psychological perspective of not having to meet certain measurements, but being able to take joy in the body that you have, or joy in your infant's body, and just um, trust it and and uh, love it for what it is. Absolutely. And also Lauren has joined us on the show already, Dress Listeners, so you can go back and listen to our episode with her if you'd like to learn more about standardized sizing, which we do discuss in her episode. The last question I want to ask you is actually not at all about wearables, but it was one of the sections of the book that I found very, very touching. You talk about clean birth kits. And I wanted to ask you all about this in case any of our listeners might be so inspired to donate to some of these um, projects that you do touch on in the book. What are clean birth kits and, and what is the global need and necessity for these projects like this that are producing them? Yeah, so one of the most preventable complications after birth is infection or um, issues uh, of training of local uh, birth advocates or assistants. So the maternal uh, death rate and the infant death rate as well can be um, really assuaged by some very, very simple interventions, being able to have the correct kind of training around hygiene practices, 
knowing what to do if there is a case of postpartum hemorrhage, which is a very usual complication, can be a very usual complication, being able to have something as simple as a clean razor to cut um, an umbilical cord, being able to have just a clean pad, a sterile sanitized pad uh, to receive a baby and the placenta onto. So being able to do some incredibly low cost and fairly simple interventions. So clean birth kit packages them up very neatly. There are many um, different nonprofits and NGOs across the world who do this. We worked with one called Janma to feature it in the book and also in the exhibition. We're also actually partnering for part of our celebration of designing motherhood at um, MAM right now in Boston later this uh, later next month in September. One of the speakers on a pan- on the panel there will be Christy Tarlington Burns, who started the nonprofit Every Mother Counts about uh, 15 or so years ago when she had her own postpartum complication. She was in a high resource country in the US. And so her, her postpartum issue, while painful, was dealt with very quickly. Um, not so if you don't have access to some of these very basic resources. And so um, the clean birth kit is a way of making sure that for a dollar or two of creating something like this, folks who are birthing in low resource countries in very rural areas, and we we often include the US in that because we are certainly not in a great space in terms of our maternal and infant health outcomes in our uh, ability to access uh, healthcare for free at the point of uh, service. This can make all the difference. And dress listeners, we're going to go ahead and put some links to some of these organizations in our show notes if you are interested about getting involved. So if our listeners happened to miss the incarnation of the exhibition that was in Philadelphia at the Mutual Museum, which you've never been to the Mutual Museum, everyone must go. It's amazing. Um, I went to a whole symposium there a few years ago on hair jewelry, Victorian hair jewelry. Not, yeah. yeah, not not for hair, made of hair. Our listeners do have some upcoming chances to still see the exhibition where and when. That is a great question. So it's currently up at the Mass Art Art Museum in Boston, and it's been open for a couple of months now. It closes there December 18, and we are um, having a celebration there actually on September 28th and 29th if people want to come join. The lovely thing about that museum is it's um, free always for everyone. And then it will move, and this is maybe breaking news because we haven't uh, shared it anywhere else, but uh, the exhibition will then open at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which sponsors things, um, including clean birth kits. And it will open there in February of 2023 in Seattle and run for a year. That's amazing. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Loved the book. Loved the project. I'm going to try to skedaddle maybe if I can over over to uh, Seattle next year. So um, I can't. I would really like to see it in person. Thank you for having us. Yes, we're huge fans of yours. So this oh. is really like a full circle moment. So thank, you so much. <laughs> thank you, ladies. Amber, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. And likewise, we are such fans of what you do. April and I consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to really chat with our wonderful fellow fashion and design historians from around the globe. So when our peers are listeners too, it really means the world to us. So thank you. Yes, and dress listeners, if you are in the Boston area in coming months, you have until December 18th of 2022 to view the Designing Motherhood exhibition in person at the Mass Art Art Museum before it travels on to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, Washington, where it will open in February of 2023. 
If you can't make the exhibitions, you can check out the accompanying catalog or book, which is available online at major booksellers. And also you can follow them on Instagram at Designing Motherhood, all one word, no punctuation. If you are also interested in learning more about how you can support the clean birth initiatives that we discussed on this episode, please check out cleanbirth.org, where for as little as $5, you can get a clean birth kit into the hands of an expectant mother. And I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider how the process of dressing our bodies at all stages of life unites us next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to do so, please write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images or reels accompanying each week's episode. If you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. We also appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.